Welcome to Real Time. I'm Erin Davis. Whether it's our salaries or our family dinners, negotiating is part of our daily lives. For realtors, it's fundamental to your business. On episode 22 of Real Time, brought to you by the Canadian Real Estate Association, we're joined by one of Canada's most influential business leaders, the dynamic and very entertaining Wes Hall, who brings us some practical knowledge. Now, with Mr. Hall, the newest member of CBC's Dragon's Den team, we'll explore principles, best practices, and trends in negotiation, as well as key takeaways to help you as a realtor to strengthen that skill. Well, look at you with the still new dragon glow to you. What a good... (laughs) (laughs) You said on a promo for CBC that everybody was going to love you and all the dragons were going to love you. How how has that worked out so far, Wes? Aaron, they, they, they still love me. Oh, good. And, uh, good. and that's what happens when you're a lovable person. Everybody's going to love you, right? Oh, okay. All right. I'll keep that in mind for our conversation here. It's great to have you with us. And your story is unbelievable. But You did, as you know, grow up living in a tin shack in Jamaica, and now here you are, one of North America's most influential power brokers, a hugely successful entrepreneur, an anti-racism activist, and of course, as we mentioned, the newest dragon in the den. So tell us if you can, Wes, here, and it will make a bestseller one day if it hasn't already, (laughs) your journey from such humble beginnings to where you are today, would you please? Well, you know, uh, it is indeed a journey. And when people hear about this tin shack, they probably roll their eyes and go, of course, everybody is from a tin shack, right? But I literally (laughs) was from that tin shack. It's got a zinc roof. It's uh, If you look it up on the internet, West Hall's Tin Shack, you probably will see it. Me and my grandmother in a picture standing looking at this shack and uh, me saying to my grandmother at the time, I'm going to get you out of this place one day. And uh, so I came, I have uh, 14 brothers and sisters, by the way, a, a traditional Jamaican family where I have zero full brothers and sisters in that, uh, in that number. Wow. And uh, so it's, uh, so my mom and dad uh, uh, didn't, was never married. Uh, they kind of had a one-off and I was that one-off. Uh, that's why I'm so special. <laughs> Uh, because you just can't replicate West Hall, right? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I, I wish you'd work on your self-confidence a bit. I'm trying. I'm well, trying, Aaron. Oh, it's just so hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to be humble, but I try. Yeah. And you came to Canada in your teens. September 27th, 1985, Friday. It was mm. a, I came here and I moved, uh, I came to live with my dad. And I moved to Malvern. That's where my dad was living at the time. And he had five kids in Canada uh, on his own. And I came in to live as number six in that, in that household. And he had another daughter that, that was in Jamaica that came later on. But I, I, I was out of the house uh, by that time. But, uh, but I was added to that, uh, that household. And it was the most amazing thing for me because it was my first time on airplane, my first time seeing traffic lights because I lived in literally the bush in, uh, in Jamaica. And, uh, and when I came here, I got off the airplane at Toronto International Airport, Pearson, and I walked outside and I saw these people, my siblings and my stepmom and my dad waiting for me. And this just, oh man, it was just a euphoric moment. And then I got into their vehicle and I'm driving on a six lane highway, the 401. 
Mm. I've never seen anything like it before. And then we landed at his house in Scarborough that the whole neighborhood was still under construction. It was like mud and dirt. But to me, that was paradise. That, I found paradise coming to Canada. And so I kept that picture of me and my grandmother in that tin shack on my desk on Bay Street for two reasons. One is to remind me of where I came from and never to forget. And two, to celebrate this great country of ours. And it's only in a place like Canada. And I hear about the American dream and so on. You never hear about the Canadian dream. But the Canadian dream is alive and well. And for me, having that picture, it's really celebrating the Canadian dream that you can come from a tin shack and you can end up at the top of corporate Canada on Bay Street. It is an amazing story. And the Canadian dream, as you say, we don't tout it enough. It's our nature to kind of downplay stuff like that. But your grandmother who raised you and your brothers and sisters, what kind of an impact or influence did she have on the man that you are today? Everything, every aspect of who I am today was architect by her. And uh, and when you think about it, she didn't sit me down and gave me lessons and say, here's how you become a man, Wes. She used her example of industriousness to show me what I should be when I grew up. See, my, I was abandoned. My sister, my older sister, she was two years older than me. My younger brother, who was a year younger than me, and I was 18 months at the time, and we were left in a house by ourselves, by our mother. And uh, a neighbor heard us crying and went to the plantation. My grandmother worked at a plantation, a sugarcane plantation, banana plantation, and coconut plantation, depending on the season. And uh, the house that we were raised in was provided uh, by the plantation owners for the workers to raise their family. So my grandmother had this t- two-room tin shack that she was given. And, uh, and she came and got us from the plantation and brought us to live with her. You know, I was 18 months old. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she wasn't argumentative about it or was bitter about it, right? She was 60. Could you imagine at 60 years old, you have all these grandkids that you're raising already, and then you inherited three more. And the three was like all under five years old. And, uh, you know, you would have some resentment towards your, your children or your kid that did it to you or towards the grandkids. My grandmother, I never, ever remembered her, you know, holding it against me as a child. But she was working extremely hard to make sure that there's food on the table for us, to make sure that we went to school. And we didn't have much. I didn't wear shoes to go to school because we couldn't afford it. And there are times when I didn't even have food to bring to school to have lunch. But the fact of the matter is that she knew that education was important and she made sure that we went to school. And so I grew up watching her. And as a result of watching her, it was instilled in me what I should be when I grow up. And uh, I wanted to be like her. And she taught you the art of negotiation. I understand, too. And as anyone who has been to a Jamaican market, I mean, as a tourist, I always go in there and I go, oh, I hate to haggle. I hate that bartering back and forth. But if you don't know how to do that, you don't belong there. Well, listen, when you are poor, you have no choice. Just just Mm. put it that way. Right. So if you think about my grandmother uh, raising all these grandkids and she has a, a finite amount of money to spend. If you think about what it's like to work in, on a sugarcane plantation, you're in the hot Jamaican sun, 
you're bent over with a machete in your right hand and grabbing the stalks of sugarcane in your, with your left hand and you're chopping at the root and then you chop the stalk at the top and then you put them in piles and you do that for 10 hours a day. And the only time you stop is to drink some water, wipe the sweat off your bro, and have a little bit of a, a snack or something to eat quickly and you go back at it again. And when you get that paycheck, once a month they pay you, you have to stretch that money as far as you possibly can. So when you go to the market to shop, you have to make sure that if they're saying that tomatoes are $2 a pound, you try to make sure that you get a tomato for 50 cents a pound. And that's what I saw in my grandmother when she would take me to the market with her, that not a single price that she was quoted, she ended up paying for that product. She always negotiated and she always got the price she wanted. And she was also someone who was selling her wares That's, as well. Exactly. So you saw it from the other side. Exactly. So I saw the buying part and the selling part. So when you're buying, you want to get it as cheap as possible. When you sell it, you want to get the most money as possible. So one of the things that my, my grandmother would do is because she would sell puddings, for example. She would bake these amazing puddings and she would sell them. And But her puddings were so good that she would be selling it for more than everybody else in the market. And she would be sold out before everybody else. And that would create this amazing word around the neighborhood that if you want to get the best pudding at the market, you have to go early because Mama Julie's pudding is always sold out early. So when you're creating that kind of demand for your product, it doesn't matter what the competition is doing, right? Because you're always going to get your price and especially when you're going to be sold out before everybody else, you can keep on marking that up. And that's what my grandmother would do, that her pudding was the most expensive pudding in the market, and it's always the one to go first. Before we leave Jamaica and head to Bay Street, which is where we're speaking to you today, what became of your grandmother? Were you able to share some of your bounty with her before she left us? Well, you know what? Thank you for that question, because I never really got asked that question in the past, and I really appreciate it. Um, you know, in that tin shack picture that you would see if you search on the internet, I was 22 years old and my grandmother was a very old woman at the time. And I went back and I said to her, mama, I'm going to get you out of this tin shack one day. I'm going to work hard enough in Canada. I will continue to work hard to get you out of that tin shack. I got my first big break on Bay street. The first one I became a vice president on Bay street. I'm like, finally, I'm ready to get my grandmother out of that tin shack and she died two weeks later. Oh. She never saw my the ultimate success. See, I had uh, three children. I was working hard. I was trying to provide for my family. And I was waiting for the perfect opportunity, the perfect timing to bring her over to show her my success. And as a result of waiting for the perfect opportunity, she never saw any of it. I shouldn't have waited. I should have brought her in here a lot sooner so that you can see what I saw when I came here at 16 years old, September 27, 1985, because that impressed me. Just being in this country impressed me. And I know she would be impressed by this country and by what I was doing to work hard and to try to provide for myself and my family here. So she never saw it. She died in that tin shack. She died in that tin shack. And that's one of the reasons why Aaron, I push myself as hard as I do, because you know, 
she deserved to be where I'm at. She deserved to appreciate the fruits of my labor because she was a big part of, uh, of that and she never got it. And so I don't really work for money anymore. Yes, I initially started by saying I want to make as much money as I possibly can. But now I try to change people's lives by the wealth I've created for myself by working hard. And if I can change people's lives, my, like my grandma to change my life, this world will be so much a better place. That is so beautiful. Thank you. And I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for that regret for you, Wes. Coming up, how Wes Hall just about let his biggest break slip away because he had to. It's a great story. Love real time? Well, thanks for finding and supporting us. Subscribe to our channels on Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher to stay up to date on future guests and stories. Or visit crea.ca slash podcast for more details and to catch up on past episodes. They are all worth your time. You referred to that job, that vice presidency that you got on Bay Street, your first really big break. But you almost, almost <laughs> talked your way out of that one. And I just love the lesson in here. Be prepared to lose. Don't pick a fight with someone who's got nothing to lose. Tell us that story, Wes, if you would, please. So I was living in a very 1,100 square foot house with my wife. We couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. We had three kids under three years old. And uh, I had this job offer to be director of business development for a U.S. company, and I was going to be business development director in Canada. But I had this mindset that my next big break has to be a vice president position. I won't accept anything less than that. And so this gentleman, the CEO of the company, offered me this opportunity to be director of business development, and he told me what the salary was and so on. And I remember when he gave me the call, I was in the master bedroom with my wife and we didn't really have enough money to afford a, a bed. So the box spring and the mattress was on the floor and that's where we're sleeping. Oh. And I took this call and the gentleman says, I have exciting news for you, Wes, after the job interview and everything, I'm offering you a position of director business development. And I said to the gentleman, I really appreciate the offer. However, I would like to be a vice president. And he said to me, well, I don't have the authority to offer you a vice president position, but director business development is yours. And I said to him, when you have the authority to offer me that job, give me a call. And, uh, and he said, okay, hang up the phone. <laughs> and that was it. And my poor wife was laying on the mattress on the floor. <laughs> and she could not believe what just happened because... We didn't even have enough money to buy diapers for all the kids. And I'm turning down this job, not because of the money, mm -hmm. but because of the title. And she couldn't believe it. But guess what happens? Two weeks later, I got a call from that gentleman and said, I have the authority to give you what you want. And I became a vice president on oh. Bay Street. Oh, those were some tense two weeks with your wife, though, I'm going to guess. <laughs> well, you know, we've been married for 30 years now, and I can tell you if I didn't get that job, it probably wouldn't have made it to 30. <laughs> Wes, why is it so hard for us to negotiate fair compensation? I think we're afraid of losing out. You know, when you think about it, that's your value. That's what's going to create wealth for yourself and your family. That compensation is going to allow you to take nice vacations, live in a nice home, be able to do things for others philanthropically and so on. 
But yet we find it very difficult to tell people, this is how much I'm worth. Mm. This is what my value is to you. And we take, we go into companies and we create massive values for companies. You know, when I was working at this vice president level at this company, I was creating a ton of value. I was underpaid. And I went into my boss's office and I said, listen, I'm underpaid because here's the value that I'm creating for you. And here's where my compensation is. They don't align with each other. And they fundamentally disagreed with me on it. And I left to start Kingsdale. Now, if they didn't disagree with me, right, I would be still working for somebody else. And I wouldn't have started my own company, Kingsdale, and become, as a result of starting this company, became one of the most successful person in the industry and become the person that I am on Bay Street today because I wasn't getting fair compensation to begin with. I tried to do something about it. And when they refused to do something about it, I decided to go on my own and bet on myself. And that's the problem. A lot of people aren't prepared to bet on themselves. And when you think about it, would you prefer to invest in somebody else? Or would you prefer to invest in yourself? Because you know what you can do. You know what your limitations are. You know what your capabilities are as well. So why not bet on yourself, especially when you want to be an entrepreneur, but you go, man, I just don't know if I can do it. You need to get those doubts out of your mind, at least give it a shot. And that's what I decided to do when I started this firm. I said, I don't want to be sitting here 20 years later regretting the opportunity that I've missed. I want to know that I've tried it, it didn't work, and I can pivot and figure something else out. And boy, have you ever, have you ever made it work out for you? And let's talk a little bit about high stakes negotiation. How do you go about reading the room? You know, every single negotiation we go into, we have to figure out who's on the other side of that negotiation, right? Some people are prepared to pay more than others. Some people are just not. When you're in a business where there's no particular price list, for example, if you look in the real estate business, and uh, there's typically, if you go down a particular street in a particular neighborhood, Every single house is not exactly priced the same. Mm -hmm. So there's room there, wiggle room for your creativity and for you to now determine to the market why your house should be more valued than the other houses in the neighborhood. And in sometimes 20, 30% higher, right? There may be features that you put into your house that others didn't put into there. How do you value that? And so in terms of negotiating, you have to figure out how important are these things to the person buying my house? So how does a realtor go about finding out what's important? Just listen or what sort of hints would you give, Wes? Well, I would say the questions that you ask. You know, when you're going through a showing, for example, you have to appreciate what are the things that are getting the person's attention that you're touring through the house. You know, sometimes, for example, we're going through and we're just excited about, oh, I can't wait to show them this part of the house. But yet that person is still in the kitchen, looking around the kitchen, but we want them to hurry up so that I can show them the important part of the house. Well, guess what? The reason why they're in the kitchen, maybe he's a chef mm. and he loves to cook. And he's looking at how he's picturing himself in the kitchen, cooking a beautiful meal. And you're trying to interrupt that by showing him the gym when he doesn't care about the gym because the gym is so beautiful or the theater is so beautiful, but he doesn't watch a TV or he doesn't watch movies or he doesn't really care about those things. 
So we can we need to read the audience and to see what's appealing to them and then focus on those moments. You know, one of the things that somebody said uh, that I heard great about selling the house is that, you know, sometimes after you finish a showing, just sit in the living room or some great part of the house with the person and have a conversation with them because then they can visualize themselves living in that house, sitting in that room, maybe reading a book, maybe the fireplace is on and it's snowing outside and all of a sudden it just changes their view on the place because they see themselves in it. And sometimes we miss those little part of getting things done. And, uh, and if we focus on those things and pay attention, we can close deals really quickly and we can actually get the prices that we're looking for. So much of this is listening, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, one of the things that I tell my team when we're negotiating, for example, and sometimes in real estate, you're on the phone negotiating with the other side and you give them all the, this is why this house is so great and everything. The feature sheets is all there and everything. And, and then you tell them, okay, but this is my price, 10 million. Let's say for argument's sake, we're in the big leagues here, 10 million. And this person on the other end, you know, you convince them that this is the best house for them. And you know, you convince them it's the best house. And then when you put the 10 million on the table, again, you try to justify it still. Why? You've already convinced them that this is a house for them. Now you have to convince them that 10 million is the price that they need to pay in order for them to own it. Let them determine, you know, why it's not worth 10 million. Sometimes we try to sell against ourselves, right? Mm. We tend to just oversell, right? When we already have this person closed, and then we try to justify the price tag that we put on there. We shouldn't justify if we list a house for 10 million. Once you start to, you put your feature sheet out and you start to bring people through it, 10 million is 10 million, right? You bring me an offer for 10 million, nothing less. You bring me something less. I'm going to have a conversation with my buyer about with my seller about it. But at the end of the day, this price is the price that you're going to pay ultimately. And you're not going to get me to say it's eight or seven because other come say this is unique. And these are the reasons why it's unique. And when you find that buyer that know that this place is unique, you got to close them. And sometimes it's listening to the seller too, the seller who maybe doesn't want this house torn down for a replacement, that they want to be able to come by and see it again with their grandchildren one day and say, this is where your parents were born or something like that. There can be things to listen to in the seller's story too, can't there? Absolutely. I sold my first house for $200,000. Bought it for one hundred and twelve thousand, and I sold it for two hundred thousand. And it's over thirty years, and every year I go back to look at that house because I remembered when I was standing in the bedroom, when I got that job offer, and I turned it down. I remember that I fixed that porch at the front. The porch was done by me, my hands, mm. and I take pictures at that house. And it's important to me that I do that. And I bring my kids by to say, this is where you were born. So if we now, if I now, let's say when I was selling that house and I had that emotional attachment to that place and somebody said, yeah, I'm going to rip it down and I'm going to build this amazing building there and the house is going to be fantastic. Fine. That's your dream. But you just took away something that's really important to me because you're going to demolish it. And as a result of that, I prefer to sell it to someone for less money who is going to preserve it than somebody who's going to destroy that memory. So sometimes if we don't appreciate the seller's motivation for selling, we could be leaving a lot of value on the table 
and we completely could be losing opportunities because we just didn't listen to the reasons behind why this person is selling this house. When we return to real time, our guest Wes Hall, one of Canada's top-ranked business negotiators, looks at the things that hold us back, the barriers when it comes to negotiation. If you're like me, you find the best coffee or tea is the one you're enjoying at home, maybe right now. But the best content is at the Crea Cafe. Tap into the knowledge of realtors across this country of ours. Share your own lessons and insights by visiting Realtors Corner on Crea Cafe, a hub of great content created by realtors for realtors. When we're talking about negotiation, as you've pointed out so Perfectly, It can come with a range of emotions, especially in an industry like real estate where clients aren't just buying and selling houses, they're buying and selling homes. They're buying and selling the place where your children came into the world and where you took that phone call and said, no, I'm going to wait for VP. Wes, what are common emotional barriers to negotiation? You've said there's a thin line between arrogance and confidence. (laughs) So what are some of the most common emotional barriers? I think sometimes it's really not really understanding people's motivation. And, um, you know, there's when we think about the real estate transaction is one of the most important transaction that you'll ever do in the business world. And I buy and sell companies and uh, and so on. But that's only a very small number of individuals that are in that category. But most people that own a home at some point, they're going to transact. At some point in their life, they're going to sell that home and then they have to make that decision very, very quickly. And the longer you stay in that home and the more improvements that you make to it, the more difficult it is to part with it. You pardon with your neighbors that you build great relationship with over the years. You're going to the unknown in the future. And so if you don't understand the emotional attachment that people may have to that piece of asset, that they've cherished for so long, that have built their value. My company, for example, that $112,000 home that I bought, for example, allowed me to buy a bigger home that allowed me to put a leverage on it to start my company Kingsdale, right? That home created the value that I have and the wealth that I have today. So it was an emotional attachment because it's my future. And if you don't appreciate it, that it's my future and don't really treat it like that, then all of a sudden, I don't want to do business with you because doing business, any type of business, especially in that space, it's about trust. I have to have trust and confidence in you that we're going to have a good working relationship. You're going to respect what I bring to the table and I'm going to respect what you bring to the table. So when you give me the advice to say, Wes, you should take this undervalued number or this price that I trust that you're coming from the right place. And that you just don't want to turn me over because you have so many deals on the table and you have so many other clients. I have to be so special to you that I believe that I'm the only client that you have, even though you may have hundreds. Yeah. Right. You have to give me the impression that I'm so important to you that there's nobody else that you're paying attention to. And so my business, Kingsdale, when you think about what we do. We advise companies that are doing hostile takeovers and shareholder activism, right? When I'm advising a CEO that's under threat, somebody's saying that we're going to replace you because you're not competent. 
And then I'm talking to that CEO and I'm saying, wait a minute here, you know, I'll call you back because I have somebody else on the phone to talk to. Mm. How do you think that person feels? In their mind, they're the most important person on your list and you're telling them that, no, no, let me call you back because I have other things to do. We should make sure that we spend as much time. And if we look at it to say, well, you're not paying me as much as somebody else. Guess what? That person in the future could be paying you so much more because you've cultivated that relationship. Again, I spent $112,000 for my first home. Could you imagine had the real estate agent who actually didn't treated me just like an, a sale? Mm. And then I bought my, my second house for double the price. And then my third house and my fourth and my fifth. And now I'm here in Dragon's Den and I'm creating this wealth. Could you imagine if that $112,000 relationship had been kept to this point, mm. how much more successful that relationship would be for that initial agent? We have to look at relationships as very, very long-term. And just forget about the price because people go through cycles in their career and you want to follow them through that cycle. And it's all dependent on how you treat them from when they're at the beginning of the cycle to all the way through the cycle. In their career and in their families, you're going to need more bedrooms. You're going to need fewer bedrooms. You might want to buy a second home if you're able to for your children to live in. Exactly right. All of these and the importance of building yeah. relationships. So just before we get off this particular part of the conversation, Wes, and we're just loving having you here today, how do we cope with our own humanity? How do we cope with our emotions and not let that overrule the sense of a business decision? When you're successful, there's a lot of pride and ego that comes with success. The reason being is because everybody's telling you how great you are. Mm -hmm. Your staff's telling you, wow, you're number one uh, in, in, in the city. Oh, you're number one in the province. Oh, you're number one in Canada. And then all of a sudden, there's other things that start to come with that. Hubris comes with it. And um, you need to have people around you. They're just not buying it. <laughs> You know, they're just, uh, I, I always use the expression with my, my wife, uh, we've been married for 30 years uh, next year, and um, we go for walks every morning. And literally, I say she carries a pen around with her <laughs> so that when my head is getting too big and bloated, she just takes the pen out and just pop it. <laughs> and that kind of keeps me grounded because I know that that person, she's going to call me out. And I want people around me to call me out because that's the only way that you are level-headed because sometimes we, we, we get ahead of ourselves and even the people that like us hate us as a result of it. Right? <laughs> I can't <laughs> like, imagine. I know. The kid's like, oh, this is too much. She's too much. You know, uh, uh, you know so if, if that starts to happen, that means that you just aren't surrounding yourself with the right people or maybe you have them, but you're not taking their advice. And, and I know some of the most successful leaders that I know today are people who have amazing people around them and they listen to them and they get good counsel from them and it allows them to be grounded and still be very, very successful. One of the things that I look at as well is, you know, philanthropically, if you're a successful person, do you give back, right? Because it takes a certain personality to go, I've earned all this money I, you know, I'm going to give it to help certain causes, or if you don't have it financially yet, to donate your time to mentor 
maybe kids in underserved communities or people who want to, you know, be a part of your uh, your sector to be able to bring them in and give them that free advice and mentorship. If you do those things and you do a lot of them, they automatically keep you humble. When we come back with negotiator extraordinaire and newest star of CBC's Dragon's Den, Wes Hall, does he ever get intimidated? And a tough message that Wes had to deliver that ended up being called the best advice the anxious recipient had ever gotten. Every day, more and more Canadians are discovering the joy of house hunting, apartment searching, and all kinds of real estate finds from the comfort of their own home. In fact, there were 1.6 million searches for realtors on Realtor.ca last year alone. You can make the most of those visits with the Realtor.ca tools we provide as part of your membership. Realtor.ca. Now back to Wes Hall on Real Time. Well, as somebody who leads shareholder activist campaigns, what strategies have you used for approaching sensitive or difficult negotiations? Because you are involved, you are giving back, you are being the person that little Wes in bare feet going to school needed at that time, other than your dear grandmother. So what strategies have you used? What do you keep in your heart while you're doing this? Well, I, I first of all, I'm never intimidated by people. You know, I remember I was advising the CEO of a very large company. He was, it was a hostile takeover and a proxy contest. And uh, I was brought in on the file pretty late. I was uh, in my late 30s. And this was a very big transaction. And the CEO made a lot of fundamental mistakes in uh, communicating to the market and strategic decisions that he made. And these shareholders came out and said, we want him fired. And so the board and the CEO hired me to defend them. And after analyzing the situation, I decided to set a meeting with the CEO and I walked, I went into his office and his office was massive, massive, massive office. It took me like five minutes to walk to his desk from the door. <laughs> and, I, and I sat there in front of him and I said to him, you know, I am really good at what I do, but there's so many mistakes that were made, I can't help you and you're gonna lose this fight. And my recommendation is for you to get into the boardroom and negotiate an exit package with the current board because we're gonna lose this fight and you're gonna have a hostile board coming in. So it's either you negotiate with friends now or enemies later, which do you prefer? And you know, that's a tough message because at the time this gentleman was making a few million dollars a year in compensation and he had a great life. And I told him there to go, go resign tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And the next day he actually resigned. And still today, he's like the best decision, best advice I've ever been given. But if I was intimidated by the size of his office, how much his compensation was, that I'm just this 30 something year old black guy walking into this accomplished person's office to give him this piece of advice, he wouldn't have gotten the right advice because of me being intimidated. And me being afraid to do the right thing and say the right thing because of how he was going to respond to it. So we have to always appreciate that, you know, integrity first, that matters. And sometimes we're giving people advice that they don't want to hear because we're intimidated by them. But if we allow that to stop us from giving the right advice, I don't think we're being good advocates. I don't think we're being good advisors. And so in the real estate business, that's what you are. You're an advisor. 
and you're going to walk into somebody's home and you're going to tell them, you know, I know you think this house is worth 10 million, but it actually doesn't. It's worth five. And there's a reason why five is a good price for it. And you're going to sit there and go, well, you know, if you were intimidated to have that conversation with that person, you're going to take it at 10. You're going to try to sell it at 10. And you realize that you can't execute at 10. And you're going to bring them an offer for five, which you know is the right offer. But then all of a sudden, your credibility is out the window because you weren't upfront and you weren't transparent in the beginning. So always be transparent because at the end of the day, after giving that CEO the advice, if he didn't resign and we lose and he loses everything because all of a sudden the new guy's coming in going, I'm not going to negotiate with your compensation package with you. I'm firing you right now and you have to sue me to get what you're entitled to. You know, he would have been worse off right in that situation. And I would feel bad that I didn't give him the right advice to begin with because I was intimidated or was afraid of what he was going to say. So we always have to think about our integrity when we give advice. Is this the right advice and why? And if the client doesn't want to take it, you're not going to have any regrets. When we wrap up our talk today with Wes Hall, how to navigate the waters when you're working with family. Don't miss it. In our previous real-time episode, you heard about homelesshub.ca and so many more valuable links as part of our Realtors Care Week. Realtors Care is all about bringing you information to help you help others. A national guiding principle celebrating the great work done by the Canadian realtor community. You can help raise awareness for the charities and causes closest to your heart by sharing your story. Just use hashtag RealtorsCare on your favorite social media platforms. Now back to our guest. He's a master negotiator, even when it comes to family, Wes Hall. I can't imagine what it was like growing up one of your five children with a master (laughs) negotiator. Did anybody ever get a raise in their allowance? or or (laughs) How did you move your negotiating prowess into parenthood? Or was this something that you left mom to do? How did that all work out, Wes? Well, well, first of all, one of my two of my boys are working with me. One is working with me very, very closely. Mm-hmm. And uh, last week, he said uh, to me, "So, um, I know we're we're on compensation season. So, I just wanted to know what uh, what what's going to happen with my comp." And I said, "How much are you making?" And he told me. And I said, "Why do you need more than that? I'm paying your rent. You're, you're living with me at home. I'm 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 buying your food. You know, <laughs> the only thing that you have to worry about is the clothes that you wear. Why do you need more money than that?" Right, right. Okay. <laughs> right. No that's fair. A, that's a, yeah, that's not a that's a reasonable kind of response to it, right? Mm. And uh, and he he started to stutter a little bit uh, because he didn't really know how to respond to that. But uh, and I said, plus the work that you're putting in, you're going to inherit in the future anyways. So why do you need money now? You you're, you're fine. <laughs> they, they, so, but but I kind of said that in the, in a sense that I kind of want to see how he responded to it, and he certainly held his own and justify why his compensation should be higher and he will get a, a higher compensation. The, you know, but what my wife said to me at times is that just remember that you're a dad first and you're their business person and the boss second. Mm. So how you interact, because, you know, when you're working closer with your, with your son or your daughter, um, especially in the real estate game where there's a lot of families working together. Yes. Sometimes we forget the fact that we're just, a parent first and uh, and the business will be fine 
but I, I, I keep that in mind every time we're having conversations about whether it be about tough conversations like compensation, conversation about discipline in terms of a work discipline, meaning that you messed up on this thing and how do I respond to you? Do I respond to you as your boss or do I respond to you as your father? Hmm. And when I get home, uh, I, do I have the boss hat on at home or do I have the dad hat on at home? So I made sure that I'm very careful in terms of what hat I'm wearing when I'm having those conversations because it could ultimately affect uh, our relationship in a very negative way if that's not managed properly. Is there a limit on how much shop talk at home or over the dinner table or? or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, my wife manages that, Erin, uh, very, very well. She's, uh, she's, she's very good about, so we try to have dinner as a family at 6 p.m. every evening. And, uh, and around the table, we talk about different things, but we're very balanced in terms of what we talk about. And so if I'm sitting on the couch reading a book or I'm watching a show, he doesn't walk in and say, hey, by the way, that deal, here's what's going on and all that. He respects that, that those, those boundaries. And so if we're having a five-minute conversation about something business uh, at the dinner table, we do that, but it's not an hour conversation. It's a very short conversation, but the rest of the conversation is about the family about us and the business will come. So we don't, we don't overly focus ourselves on business, 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 because, you know, that could be draining and, and there's no time to unwind and, and there's a lot of stress that comes with that. So to the extent that when I'm, when I'm walking with my wife, for example, if I have something on my mind business-wise, that's where it gets resolved. Because it's amazing when you're talking to somebody who's not in the sector that you're in, mm -hmm they can see problems from a completely different perspective. And I value that perspective because I would never have thought of the solution the way that she would think about it. And I find that I solve, we solve a lot of problems in my business world by having those walks and having those conversations with her about challenges that I'm facing and coming up with a completely different way of thinking about it that I wouldn't have. You know, Wes, that once COVID's over, you're not going to be able to hide behind the mask and everybody's going to be recognizing you from TV. Your wife's going to need a bigger <laughs> pin. Well, she it's funny. She was walking. I was walking through the neighborhood and uh, this was when I was just announced on Dragon's Den. Yeah. And this uh, young lady walked by me and she turned around and said, are you Wes Hall? <gasps> My wife was with me. And I said, yes, sick. Oh, I love you. I was like, I can't wait to watch you. And, the, mm. and my wife, uh, after she turned around, she looked at me and said, oh, man, I, I'm not going to live this down. Ah! <laughs> I'm gonna... <laughs> she, so I'm like, you know, see, I'm a big deal, honey. You got to treat me like a big deal. And she just like, uh, you know, she shaked her head and go, yeah, never. <laughs> ah, that's great. Great, great, great. Thank you for helping us to talk about negotiating deals and everything that's been uh, a part of this, Wes. It's been just such a pleasure. And you you are a big deal. Don't, you know. Just... Aaron, you you know what? You're so kind. You should be my PR person. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I probably can't afford you for that. <laughs> well, now that you've taught me how to negotiate. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. And best of luck to you in everything. I can't wait to read an autobiography about you or I'll write it's it with out, you. It's, it's coming out next year, so stay tuned. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Wes, so much. Perfect. Thank you. 
And thanks again to Wes Hall for joining us for this episode of Real Time, brought to you by the Canadian Real Estate Association. And remember to be sure to visit crea.ca to access valuable resources and discover more fantastic real estate-related content. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button, will you please? Real Time is produced by Rob Whitehead with Real Family Productions and Alphabet Creative. I'm Erin Davis. Thank you for making the time to join us. 